My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. As children begin to get a little bit older, you start to give them gifts or or things for their own possession that are a little bit more valuable and uh, take a little bit more care to use or or to to operate rightly. And so parents or people in their lives will make sure that they're, they're using it correctly, not misusing it or abusing it, because of course that can result uh, in, in breaking it or, or various other things happening. I actually saw that there is a, a show on, on TV now that kind of highlights the fact that as human beings we tend to use things in the wrong way. We sort of invent its own use and do that. It's called You're Doing It Wrong. You're Doing It Wrong. And it shows not only how to do things the right way, but also some little tricks in life that uh, can make things a little bit easier. But the point is that If we have a false understanding about something or or what its use is, we're going to use it in the wrong way. We're going to abuse it. And how sad it is when we misuse or abuse a gift from God. And and that's something that confronts us in this passage today. That's really one of the main ideas in what Jesus does in driving out certain people from the temple in Jerusalem. And he's showing us, Jesus, in this passage in Luke, is showing us a couple of things. He's showing us the importance of true worship, the the importance of coming before the God who is worthy of praise and, and giving him all of those things that he deserves. And then secondly, Jesus shows us why it is that true worship only happens in him. True worship only happens in Christ. So in these short verses, uh, we'll unpack these truths, and really we're going to focus on just the, the, the beginning few verses, the beginning two verses, I believe, or three verses of uh, this short passage. But we'll see uh, three things. Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as the power of a transformed life. Prophet, priest, and the power of a transformed life. So first, Jesus as prophet. When we speak of him here as prophet, he's the one who is showing us uh, the importance of true worship and how the people of his day were abusing the gift that God had given to them uh, to worship him in, in the temple, in the holy place. Last week's passage had some prophetic connections as well. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah the prophet wept over Jerusalem and their rebellion against God. Jesus predicts that the temple is going to be destroyed and that prophecy, or doesn't predict, he declares that the temple is going to be destroyed and that would go on to happen in 70 AD. That was part of the judgment of God in uh, the rebellion of his people against him in rejecting the Messiah. About a generation after the life of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by a Roman army. And so Jesus is filled with compassion and yet he declares that justice is going to come. And that's often what the prophets of God will do. They will balance justice and mercy. 
God is a God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love. But the universe which he has created is a universe in which sin will be dealt with. Sin will be dealt with in the universe of God one way or another. It doesn't just get brushed to the side. It's not just simply forgotten. It must be dealt with one way or another, whether we bear it ourselves or someone else bears it for us. So that leads into what Jesus does in this passage this morning. He goes into the temple, the Son of God, entering the temple. And what he does, we read that he drives out those who were selling this is uh, those who would be selling the animals for the sacrifices. Now, this, uh, this account is in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in John, as well as the passage before us. And Luke's passage is the, the most muted of all of them. We get less of the, the righteous anger of Jesus. You know, we get less of groups of people uh, that he drives out. And so we need to understand what it is that Luke is trying to highlight. And really... What, what he's bringing to our minds is this idea of the importance of true worship and how Jesus, clearing out the temple in a certain sense, brings us to that truth. Let's look at the words of Jesus as he goes into the temple. In verse 46, in front of us, Jesus has a quotation from two different prophets. First from Isaiah, and second from Jeremiah. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. So when Jesus says, my, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, that is from Isaiah 56. Now, when, when Jesus invokes these two prophets, it's important to understand the context from which these quotations come. So that we know the kinds of truths that Jesus is bringing to our minds. So what's going on in Isaiah 56? Isaiah 56 is this prophecy that, uh, where uh, the prophet sees an age where God will gather from all the corners of the earth members of his covenant people. He will bring from every tribe and tongue and nation people to Jerusalem in order to worship him, in order to make sacrifice for him in the temple. This is what Isaiah is seeing, that God's temple would be a house of prayer, a house of prayer through all throughout all of the world for all of the nations. So Jesus is invoking this prophecy in order to bring a truth to our minds. And it is this. He's showing us why it is that the temple exists in the first place. The temple of God in Jerusalem, in the Old Testament, exists because God desires to make worshipers out of his human creatures. He desires that his human creatures who have rebelled against him that they would worship him in spirit and in truth. The, the whole sweep of scripture from, from Genesis on, the redemptive plan of God that's unified in his covenant of grace, all happens quite simply because God wants his creatures, his people, to worship him. That is the great desire of God. They would worship him not only in religious ceremony, but in a devotion of life, a vitality that would mark each and every area of their lives. I mentioned this at the beginning of our worship service last week, quote from Archbishop William Templeton, who teaches us about what worship is. What is worship? And this quote highlights not only the kind of mindset that we, have, that we are to bring when we come into the Lord's house on the Lord's day, but also how every area of our life of our life is to be marked by this sense of serving God. This is what William Templeton says. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. 
It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. You see how when we worship God in the presence of His people, it, that, that's, it's a summary of all of those things. We're adoring God. We're submitting our wills to Him. We're showing how all of our nature uh, is given over to Him. That's what it means to knowingly live in uh, the light and the love of the God of the universe. And this is what God wants. He wants people to live for Him that way. To worship Him that way and to let uh, the, the, the corporate worship of God bubble over into our lives. So that we're living uh, according to all of those things that we just read. This is why the temple existed. And Israel was to have a role in that process, right? They were to be a people set apart in the midst of the world. They were to be a people who showed forth their love and devotion to God. They were to show how it is that people serve the creator of the heavens and the earth. They promised to do this. When God brings them out of Egypt, he gives them the law on Mount Sinai. They said, all of this we will do. We will serve you. We will love you. We will obey you. But they had failed in serving and obeying. They had not loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jesus then invokes this, the second quotation, which, uh, you know, the spirit of which is very common in the prophets. The prophets were, in a sense, acting as prosecuting lawyers. They came on behalf of God. And they laid all the evidence before Israel and said, this is how you're living. You're rebelling against God. You're breaking the covenant that you had said you would keep. And so Jesus says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. For God wants true worshipers. But you have made it a den of robbers. This is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Again, the context is key to understand. Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of Judah before the city of Jerusalem fell in about 586 B.C. He is, uh, so he's prophesying to the southern kingdom of the people of God. The Lord says to Jeremiah, go to the temple and stand there and give them a word. And the word from God through Jeremiah is quite simple. God's accusation against them is that they are worshiping him with defiled hands and divided hearts. When God has commanded again and again and again, what does he want? He wants clean hands and pure hearts. Their lives are insincere. They're insincere worshipers of God as opposed to his wanting true worshipers. Their lives are marked by corruption, greed, false worship. They're running after other gods. There were various gods and goddesses that were popular in Judah at that time. They built idols. And so Jeremiah chapter 7 has this absurd picture. It paints it for us of children. Uh, gathering up wood and, and women baking and men building all in the name of gods other than the Lord, other than Yahweh, their covenant king. And the Lord's accusation against them is it, pointing out the absurdity. Do you think you can get away with this? I know how you're living. I know how insincere you are. So here's uh, the context from Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 8. The Lord says through Jeremiah, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, 
and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? You see, the people of Judah thought that the temple was never going to be taken away from them. That God has given it to us. It's kind of the place where we go and we get right with him. And uh, we're never going to lose that privilege. We're never going to lose that blessing. And so when God says through Jeremiah that they are robbers, that this has become a den of robbers, he is pointing out chiefly uh, a lack of holiness, a a, a moral corruption that that had swept through the people of God that made them robbers rather than true worshipers. They were robbing from God. They were presuming upon his grace. They were abusing his forgiveness. And that becomes the main emphasis here in Luke. Oftentimes when we think of Jesus clearing out the temple, we we think about his his accusations against the people of his day where the temple had become a marketplace, a place where there was too much buying and selling and focusing on other things. And certainly that is true. That's a part of the corruption. But what Jesus is, is honing in on here, specifically in Luke, is the insincerity of the people of God who were coming before him, and they were marked by the same kinds of moral corruption as in Jeremiah's day. They were marked with the same kind of presumption upon the grace of God, assuming that God was always for them, even though they lacked a sincerity of heart. Though as Jesus is clearing the temple, he's clearing it of corruption, and he's clearing it of those who are selling the animals for sacrifice, as if to say, I don't even want sacrifices to continue. Because of the corruption and because of the defilement that you are bringing upon the temple of God. There's a lesson there in in, uh, not coming, the importance of not approaching God with insincerity. You know, there's, we're going to go deeper than this and look at the priestly work of Christ. But there is a lesson for us to remember that we always are to approach God with great care. And that Jesus is not going to stand by as he does, in, in, uh, he does not do in this passage. He's not going to stand by and allow this kind of corruption uh, to go on. J.C. Ryle gives us encouragement as he thinks about this passage. He says, let us remember the conduct and language of our Lord whenever we go to a place of public worship. These are places where God's word is read, where Christ is present, where the Holy Spirit works on souls. These facts ought to make us grave, reverent, and solemn whenever we enter them. The man who behaves as carelessly in a church as he would in an inn or a private dwelling has yet much to learn. He has not the mind of Christ. Jesus here is reflecting the the words of the psalmist in 119 where as the anointed one of God, he's looking out across the world and he is enraged because he sees rebellion against the law of God. He sees people everywhere who are filled with insincerity, with defilement. The Psalm 119, verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. That's certainly part of the lesson here is to remember that uh, it's important. It's important to come before God with uh, sincerity. But there is something deeper. There's something deeper. and, And what it is comes before us as we consider Jesus as our great High priest, our great high priest. Do you remember at the beginning where we talked about God desiring the importance of true worship of God? And secondly, Jesus brings 
Fourth, why it is that true worship can only happen in him. Why it is that true worship can only happen in Christ. And that's what we see as we consider the priestly work of Christ. This is a symbolic act. Jesus is going into the temple and he begins to rid it of its corruption. He certainly does not kick out everyone. He drives out the sellers in this account, those who were selling the animals, for a symbolic reason. And the symbolic reason is this. As he drives out those who allowed for the sacrifices in selling these animals, he is showing this one central truth, and that is this. That at the end of his life, Jesus will stand alone in the temple. Not in the earthly temple, right? Jesus is not crucified, sacrificed on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. But at the end of his life, Jesus will stand alone in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the heavenly tabernacle, and he will offer himself as a sacrifice that will be better and will be more complete than all of the sacrifices before it. See, the earlier quote from Isaiah 56 has this vision of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every corner of the globe, coming to Jerusalem to worship God, to worship God rightly. But how that is fulfilled is not by uh, people having an earthly pilgrimage to the earthly Jerusalem. Rather, the way it is fulfilled is by the Messiah of God, the chosen one of God, living a perfect life, offering of himself a sacrifice to cleanse and to reconcile sinners to God. And all of those who believe and trust in the Messiah then ascend to the heavenly Jerusalem, enter into the Holy of Holies because of Christ and in Christ. You see, the earthly temple could only point forward to that event. The earthly temple could only foreshadow what was to come. The book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats can never ultimately take away sins. They pointed beyond themselves to something that was greater. So when Jesus is is clearing the temple because of sin, it's not just that he needs to rid it of corruption. What he's showing us is, is that there will only be one who is able to stand before God with clean hands and a pure heart in the temple, in the most holy place, and offer a sacrifice of praise that will satisfy the justice of God. Hebrews chapter 9 gives us a glimpse into exactly uh, what we're talking about here. It says this, Hebrews 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's a great summary of the work of Christ, that that three-word phrase, once for all. He alone will stand In the true temple, the true heavenly tabernacle. This is the centrality of the work of Christ. Only what he has done can satisfy divine justice. So symbolically, that's what we see. Jesus is beginning to clear out the temple so that he might cleanse sinners of their sin, reconcile them to God, and allow them to be righteous and holy in the sight of God. It's highlighting for us the priestly work of Christ as our great high priest, as our intercessor, as our mediator. Our catechism says that in his priesthood, he redeems us 
and he continually intercedes for us. That needs to be a great joy in the life of the Christian, to think about that Jesus Christ has risen, he has ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the throne on high, and he continually intercedes for us. He appears before the throne of grace only because of the need to wash away sin. So when we struggle with sin, when we're, when we're constantly discouraged by our besetting sins, what we are called to look to is to remember our Savior who appears before there as our great high priest in order to intercede for us, in order to plead our cause uh, before the throne of grace. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And then finally, he is the power. He is the power of a transformed life. It is him. It is he who provides us with the power that we need. Uh, to live a transformed life. God says that he wants clean hands and pure hearts. Psalm 15, Psalm 24. These are the ones uh, who, who ascend the mountain of the Lord. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But none of us can meet that standard. But there is one who has. Only Jesus can stand. Only Jesus can stand. And, and that uh, brings forth another truth. That we need to know. There's a a central truth that needs to shape the way that we think about the Christian life and shape the way that we approach living for our Lord. And that truth is union with Christ. To be united to Jesus in faith, to be hidden in him, and uh, to have our life shaped by that truth. Go and read, for instance, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. You can't read Ephesians 1 and not think that Paul has anything other than union with Christ as sort of that central reality. If you read Ephesians 1, there's that constant refrain, in him, in him, in him. We have been chosen in Christ. We have been made alive in Christ. We have been cleansed in Christ. And we are seated with Christ. Union with Christ is this wonderful This magnificent theological truth that happens by uh, regeneration and faith. The Spirit makes a dead heart live when the gospel is preached and we know our need for a Savior. We're made alive by the Spirit, made to trust in our Savior, and we are united to Jesus, the only one who can stand in the temple of God, the only one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And every spiritual blessing that we experience in salvation, that we receive in salvation, happens because we are united to Jesus. They are ours. All of the blessings of salvation are ours because they are his. We have earned them because he earned them for us. We must be hidden in the work, uh, we must be hidden in the person of Christ because of his work for us. So how do you live a life of true worship? Jesus shows us the importance of living a life of true worship. He shows us that we must be united to him. That true worship only happens in him and in union with him. In a real sense, it's only Christ who stands before the Father. It's only Christ who ever stands before the Father and is found righteous. But all of those who believe in Jesus, all of those who trust in him, are hidden, are hidden in Jesus. He covers us, he covers our sins, and he covers us with his robes of righteousness. This is why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Only Jesus can stand. All others who come into the presence of God become thieves and robbers. 
become thieves and robbers. It is Christ who covers us. It is Christ who is our righteousness. And yet, if you go to the New Testament and you read, uh, you read the words of the New Testament, and over and over and over again, you see that we are called to live a life of obedience and faithfulness and growth and holiness. That we are to grow more and more in our knowledge of God, in our devotion to God, in our love of God. You need to understand this truth of union with Christ because it is He who is the power of our transformed life. As He gives the Spirit to us in the name of Christ and because of what He has done for us. So for instance, Colossians chapter 1. Paul says this very thing. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There he gives us at least three different things that we are to do. Walk in a manner worthy, bear fruit, increase in the knowledge of God. But then he gives us the secret to that in the next verse. He says, may you be strengthened, not may you gird up your strength. May you do it according to your own power. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's the Lord, according to the glorious might of the Lord. Paul says, for he has delivered us. He has brought us into the kingdom. And in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the power of a transformed life is to give the amount of effort and growing in holiness, and growing in love, and growing to devotion, give the same amount of effort that you would if you had to earn your salvation yourself. But praise and thanks be to God that you do not. And that as much as you strive, if you strive trusting in Jesus, as Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live every step of the way knowing that only He can stand before God. That only He is the power of Uh, to transform as he gives the spirit to me and abiding in me who brings to me that uh, those benefits of christ not only not only justification but sanctification as well we need to know and to understand that no matter what we do no matter how we live we can never improve upon our justification and so our call is to rejoice in union with christ rejoice in that union that we have with him and when we rejoice in that union with christ we will see how by his power we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. One with himself. One with himself. United to him, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Before the throne, my surety stands. Right? That's not us, that's Jesus. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Rejoice in being united to Jesus, knowing that only he can stand before the Father, yet he hides us in his life. He hides us in his life and he gives us his power that we might live for him. That is, that is the beginning of living the Christian life and living a life that is fully pleasing to our God. Let's pray. Our souls, Father, cry out, cry out for a greater realization of this truth. That you, would, that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives, that you would bring it to us freshly and that we would rejoice in it more and more. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus who reminds us in this symbolic act of beginning to clear out the temple, that corruption needed to be gone, but if corruption was fully gone, he would make everyone leave. 
He alone would stand. Thank you that when he ascended, he alone was standing and becomes our surety before the throne and he reconciles us to you and, and, and intercedes for us. We pray in his name then. Amen. Number 305 is our closing hymn today.